0: This episode of The Body Serve is brought to you by Health IQ, an insurance agency that helps health-conscious people like runners, vegans, weightlifters, and you guessed it, tennis players, get lower rates on life insurance. Go to healthiq.com slash bodyserve or mention the promo code bodyserve when speaking with an agent to support the show and see if you qualify. But I, don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. But I really gave it my all. So that, for me, is enough.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. And we're here with our wrap of the Australian Open. It is finally over. The dark cloud has lifted.
0: Set aside everything that happened or didn't happen over the last two weeks. This has been the most taxing personally for me.
1: <laughs> was I right or was I right? You know, sometimes you just have a gut feeling. It's not always correct. But this time, that dark cloud, it was more than I expected.
0: Well, what is it that you were correct about? I'm not necessarily talking about the Sangren stuff, which we'll get into. Oh, okay. Like, that's part of it, but... I, I mean, I watched so much tennis
1: mm-hmm.
0: these past two weeks. And we'll, we'll be doing a wrap-up of, of the winners, obviously. Your champions are Caroline Wozniacki and Roger Federer. We did not watch the men's final. Like, that was self-care on my mm-hmm. part. Like, I, I, I needed sleep. <laughs> yeah, I have early mornings on the weekend, and I just could not do that last night. The same. I No, it's not quite the same. You had the you have the weekends off.
1: Oh, oh, I mean I I could definitely have watched it had I wanted to. Full stop. For the your,
0: women's, to fulfill no, your professional obligations my, to the
1: podcast? Pro, well I guess it is profi- yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You know, I can't be all things to all people. Per your question, The Dark Cloud uh I was pleasantly surprised by the women's half of the tournament, or should I say the women's 85% of the tournament, because they did all of the heavy lifting. You know, I was hopeful that Anjali Kerber would win the tournament, or Naomi Osaka, but I can't say that I was disappointed with the result or the way we got there.
0: I'm going to ask you this question now. You don't have to answer it. By the end of the women's section wrap-up, I will need an answer from you, though. Mm. I pressed you on previous episodes about the need to find your post Williams stand but what is it that we need from an athlete to stand for them mm-hmm. and I want to know if you're any closer to coming to a conclusion cuz okay. I de- I definitely found one
1: I'll I'll answer that at the end of the segment we have to remember to come back to okay. it Okay let's jump right in to this women's draw do you want to start with the final start yeah. at the end mm-hmm. so Caroline Wozniaczka fulfilled the promise. <laughs> when I first saw the result, I was like, mm, kind of wanted Simona. I like slightly favored Simona to win, which surprised me.
0: What surprised you about that?
1: Um, I don't know, because I thought it was I was completely neutral. Oh. So, you know, I DVR'd the final, but I found out the result before I went back to watch it. And I was uh, surprisingly a little bit bummed that Simona didn't do it. I think because I feel that she's had so much more heartbreak because she was so much closer in those two Grand Slam finals that she lost previously. And and I thought she just had to fight so much harder to get to the final. Especially in that semifinal versus Kerber, I felt that whoever made it out of that match not deserved to win, because there's no deserving to win. Like, you either do or you don't. But it's it is a bit a fraught, heartbreaking that you, you fought so, so hard and came up just short. It's such so a close. fraught
0: word. In talking about sport, to say that somebody deserved something. Right, because, because you if, either
1: do it or you don't,
0: right? Well, also, you have the matches that you play within the tournament, and then you have all the practice and the years of work that you put in to get to this point. Mm-hmm. And so, who are we to judge whether somebody deserves something or not?
1: True. Wozniacki was number one for 60-something weeks back in 2010 and 2011. She made Grand Slam finals. She lost them. She lost the ranking. I mean, she's been beaten up in the press quite a bit. And, and among fans, you know, I there was, I think, a sense that she was a player who was never going to happen. Yeah, it, it at a
0: certain point, and especially when you got to... 2016, when she was dealing with all those injuries and Mm -hmm. she gets to the U.S. Open, where she had all those points to defend, you wonder, heading into that tournament ranked 74th, if she doesn't defend those points and she falls out of the top 100, where her career goes at that point. Mm -hmm. When people already at that point feel like maybe she's passed her expiration date as a slam winner, a potential slam winner. And all we've seen since then is a a total 180 in the trajectory of her career. She played well that fall. She turns in the most consistent year of any player in 2017. And one of the knocks on her last year was that, oh, well, she made all these finals, but she couldn't get the job done. And she's able to come back again after winning Singapore. This is something right. that we've talked about on previous episodes. How prior winners of Singapore have had a mm-hmm. letdown, and haven't been able to to come back and after such a short turnaround and and translate that into the following year success. Oh,
1: see that, but that's what you said. You told me to back off the the year-end finals as a harbinger of success okay. because it it doesn't always correlate, mm-hmm. right?
0: Yeah, it doesn't always. This but, time it did.
1: Yeah, and and I felt that. Winning Singapore after such a great year, getting her first win over Venus Williams she has a so now she has a win over both Williams sisters. I felt that her mentality and the way that she was willing to improve tough spots in her game was a game changer mm-hmm. to me, uh, the forehand improvement is maybe what won her this title but it's a serve
0: it's absolutely the serve I feel well. Obviously there are many facets mm, well, that yeah, were improved, of course, but,
1: but maybe the willingness to go for it on serve, right? Just just the mental approach? Yeah, I mean the serve still isn't gonna blow you off the
0: court. She was hitting 170s, low 170s on the first serve consistently. Mm-hmm. But she was able to get the ball in play at that pace in her spots. And that that changes everything for her to be able to dictate and be aggressive. It's one thing to knock her and say, well, Caroline is too defensive, a common critique over the Mm -hmm. course of her career. But it's not enough to say, well, maybe you need to put some power in that forehand or ramp it up on the backhand. Getting into an aggressive position starts from the serve. And if you're able to do that more consistently, which she was absolutely this tournament able to do, then you're ahead of the game Mm -hmm. relative to where she was before.
1: Because while while she can turn... Her excellent defense and offense, why let yourself start in a neutral to defensive position on your serve, right? Like, why would you give yourself that disadvantage?
0: Well, it's not a choice, but she well, she worked on but it. But she chose to, she improved it. I mean, Sarah Rani is not going to improve her <laughs> serve to the point where she's going to be aggressive from the that, first strike. That's true. Right. Yeah. This is something that that she worked on and was physically able to do and more power to her. The, the eye test for me in, I've never played tennis, neither of us has played tennis professionally. Like we we can't bring that eye <laughs> That's an to understatement. the the tennis and the, the analysis, yeah. right? And so a lot of my perception of what's going on on the court is about an eye test, my novice layperson's eye test. Mm-hmm. And I thought coming into the final, one of the, the things to look for was how Simona was going to be able to open up the court with her short-angled backhand and her improved pace on her backhand, Mm -hmm. because that was one of the things that I took away from that semifinal against Kerber. We'll get to that in a little bit. Watching the two players rally from the baseline, you come into the match, or I did, thinking, well, Simona has more pop from the ground, and maybe she'll be able to bully Caroline a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case, because Caroline has sneaky pace on her shots as well, and she's crafty with her defense, to be able to redirect the ball and have a willingness to redirect the ball in ways that Simona wasn't able to. And I think that's where Simona fell behind in this final a lot. Mm. Because Caroline was just so steady. She led in each set. Simona was able to come back in the second set and win it. Caroline had a few moments where she kind of took her foot off the gas right, in that second set and in the third set, right? But at no point did Caroline... Look like she was being bullied on court. And so my eye test here is while you're not able to say, well, oh, wow, what a, what a fantastic forehand. She just blasted that forehand for a winner. Like she's really pegging Simona back. Instead, it's like, well, we're getting an even match here.
1: Like they look uneven footing from the ground. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And I remarked watching the match, wow. Like Caroline's forehand is so improved. She doesn't have to avoid it. And look at Simona's cross-court backhand. Like, my God. In both the semi and the final, that shot didn't need any improvement. It was already there. And I think Simona came in with with the right mentality. I think she was ready to fight. And really, it, it was a combination of Caroline being too steady and too good. And Simona just had nothing left. And I don't want to make that as an excuse or take away from Caroline's victory, but there was clearly nothing in her legs toward the end of that third set. Caroline had the medical timeout, Simona got a break in the third, and after the timeout, Caroline won the next three games and that was it. And I got the sense that Simona was willing to fight, and at the end, she smiled kind of sardonically to her box uh, right before match point and was like, w- what more can I do? Like, I- I'm-, I'm really working my ass off out here and I can't hit through her. Like, she won't, she won't go away. In this final, each time one player
0: looked like they had the initiative, the other person rested it back. Caroline essentially ran away with the first set. They they kept close to each other in the second set before Simona went away with it in the end. Caroline comes out, three love lead in the third set. Simona, after she looks like she is gassed at Mm -hmm. the start of that third set, comes back to win four games in a row to then serve with a 4-3 break lead. And... You're like, well, wow. We like, are, you think
1: we, like, is this going to be
0: over yeah. soon? We are at a critical moment here, where in past times, Simona has let leads go, mm-hmm. and that's not what happened this time around. Simona tried her hardest. Yeah, <laughs> and you talk about that that wry smile that she had at the end. She did all she could mm-hmm. on that deuce point. <laughs> yep. And Caroline ran every ball down and came up with magic to set up that, that championship point. And that's where that look from Simona came. Think about where she's come from, the the ankle in the very first match.
1: Right. I, I mean, people thought she was done. She, was, she wouldn't be able to play against Bouchard. She was almost out in the first
0: round for the third straight year. Mm-hmm. She comes back, beats Bouchard. She has that just ghastly third round match against Lauren Davis. Mm-hmm. Where you were very critical of her playing that match.
1: And I think, you know, I came almost all the way around on Simona at this tournament watching how she progressed after that Davis match. Because she had to take on Osaka after a brilliant performance against Bardi. Knocked Osaka out. And then she put in a classic semifinal and quite possibly a classic final. Not
0: just a classic semifinal a classic semi-final where she pushed Kerber to the limit. Mm-hmm. Like there were many times throughout this event, you might point to that Davis match as one where she was a little bit timid. Exactly. In, in this the is, key This points. is
1: why I've sort of come around. Yeah, but Because she that, took out Kerber's legs. That's in, not easy to do.
0: In that semi-final, there was no relenting from Simona. She was down many times. Both women had... See, we're giving away that segment now. That's our, that's our match of the tournament.
1: Oh, that's okay. I mean, it doesn't have to be that segmented. Simona, in those
0: moments, just kept being more and more and more aggressive. If she hit a cross-court backhand to Angie's forehand that didn't quite get the job done, she went a shorter angle with more power mm-hmm. the next ball. Right. Kept at it the same shot until she's like, you know what? something. <laughs> you know it's like this is this is what I'm doing here like there were, and there was no defeatism about her play in the later rounds at all which is what impressed me most
1: yeah and when I talk about aggression and I know you take me to task sometimes for underestimating like counter punchers mm-hmm. but when I talk about aggression I don't mean that you have to pound the stuffing out of the ball and you have to come to net on every other point you can do stuff, Be you can be an aggressive counterpuncher like Simona was, be willing to step into the court on that backhand to make things happen, you know? It doesn't have to be all about power. And so that's why I enjoyed watching Simona's game so much more as the tournament went on. Because I think after that bad match against Davis, something clicked and was like, yeah, I, like I'm the number one player in the world and I'm going to play like it. Perhaps part of it was, you get to
0: the third round, you've had all this drama already. And you're thinking, well, I'm the number one player in the world. If I'm to win this tournament, I have to win four more matches. And you have this litany of top talent mm-hmm. to get through. Like There's I, only I, one way through it. You've got to hit the ball.
1: Yeah. Like, I can't be on court for three hours every match and expect to, to make it to the final. Which, it turns out, she was. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. She took care of Pliskova pretty quickly.
0: Yes, that's one of the, the under-told stories mm-hmm. of this event because, man. that <laughs> Right? <laughs> because Having a back-to-back stretch of beating Osaka and Pliskova like that reminds me of Venus beating Osaka and then Kanta back-to-back. Right. And Miss Ostapenko at Wimbledon last year.
1: Well, those feel like title runs. Mm-hmm.
0: But the efficiency of doing it as well. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to Wozniacki a little bit here. Can you imagine what she's feeling at this moment
1: well yeah she's trying to get on the cover of (laughs) l excuse me like what does she have to do (laughs) i mean if you see
0: lena's agent reference in her victory speech Mm -hmm. and that's what you raise it's like it felt (laughs) you know what i mean just it didn't quite compare it was it was Um, a a nice little attempt
1: it was weird i mean caroline has a long history of attempting humor and it just Failing badly. So <laughs> her best moments are off the cuff.
0: I I sat down for that final wanting Simona to win. Mm. And by the end of that first set, I was like, I'm going to just watch this and enjoy it. Because both women turned up and showed out. Mm-hmm. Just like both women turned up and showed all the way out in that semifinal with Angelique Kerber. You know, people will knock Caroline's path to the final and to the title, saying that it wasn't... It cl- Well, I mean, this is not even up for debate. It was not the same as Simona's path mm-hmm. to the final. But at this point in her career, we talk about this all the time, like, you can only play who's in front of you. The work that she's done to get here is beyond reproach, right? Yeah. And th- it would have been a crying shame, frankly, if she had finished her career without having won one of these,
1: mm-hmm. I feel like she's been out here longer than a lot of the other women who are currently slam slamless. She has been so long at number one; it would have, yeah, it would have been horrible had she retired and not had one, because it's been hanging around her like an albatross. And
0: it's impressive to have that turn around and do that at this point in her career.
1: It is because she didn't fall into it. She really remade parts of her game and, like, dedicated herself to the sport. And her father's there, still in her box, and she's also gotten a lot of criticism, uh, probably from us, too. Mostly from
0: you. That's been one of your your favorite (laughs) topics.
1: But, you know, he's there, he's the coach, and he is part of the team that led her to her Grand Slam title. She don't got no problems with Peter. You know, it's no. other people talking about right, Peter. Right,
0: right. And which is why he must be, I think I saw uh, Tamani Carriel say on Twitter that he must be the most smug person right now. Because <laughs> right? It, she's won and he's there. So all uh, y'all haters can suck it I don't think much. I've
1: ever seen him smile.
0: I didn't even know what he looked like until this tournament. What? I, I pay so little attention to players' boxes. Like, I find the whole thing so offensive. Mm. Like, I'm here to watch the tennis. Yeah. Leave me be. Right. At stake in this final, both women were playing for number one, and both women were playing for their first ever Grand Slam title. And both women, arguably, were the two best players, current players, to have never won a Slam. Radwanska might say something about that, but mm-hmm. to my mind, these were the two women. And with those stakes on offer, for the two of them to come out and play like that, that was such a treat and a showcase
1: for the WTA. So now Simona's put in at least two classic Grand Slam final performances. Sharapova in 2014. <laughs> yes, which I felt she should have won. And now the Australian Open. Another three-set final against Ostapenko. You can't say that she is shattered by nerves when she gets to a Grand Slam final. She comes to play. And I, I still feel like it's a matter of time that she'll get one. I hope that she keeps in mind that a lot of greats faltered many times before reaching it. Kim Clijsters, who retired with four, Andy Murray, Yvonne Lendl, one of the all-time greats, for three years, you know, just struggled through Grand Slam finals and finally won one in 84. So, you know, hope is alive.
0: Let's talk about Simona here a little bit. I... I think I'm. I'm. You can answer your part of that question later. But I'm gonna say now that I am, I'm a fan of Simone mm. Halep. Like I've, I've struggled with her game in the past, but I loved everything I saw on court, from Osaka onwards. This mm-hmm. tournament, it was, it was thrilling to watch, actually. And how do we square that, with, her, comments? <laughs> in the past which is something that has has honestly turned us off of her in the past Re- with regard to Ian Tyriac with regard to Nastasi being caught up in that Romanian clusterfuck of sexism and misogyny to be frank mm. and not really finding the right words to massage her way out of that to stepping in it even more frankly when she's talking about equal prize money Mm. and we are of the opinion we've said in the past that there's it's a it's a little bit different for her to say the things she did than to say than say somebody like if Nicole Gibbs had
1: said well yeah considering the you know the cultural differences the the national pressures that are on her are are complex in something that you know we don't fully understand um I still (laughs) you know I'm I'm still not ready to embrace her fully, but I'm I'm letting go. I'm I'm not holding that against her.
0: I'm keeping that side of her at a distance for now, because mm. I I've been across the table from her in press. I've now watched her extensively in these high pressure moments, and all those things align to to be Simone as somebody that I can stand right but that that other stuff I'm still waiting i I, mm-hmm. I, I want to see how that develops a little bit more but I do grant her a little bit more leeway than others for sure for those mm-hmm. reasons because you had told me frankly because I, I asked you this this fortnight I said throughout the course of this this podcast that we've been doing it she was somebody that you were talking about highly for a long time yes especially in the early days 2015 and I I was like I mean paying attention to her results but I I was like, eh, you know, it was, you were absolutely more of a fan of Simona.
1: Mm-hmm. And now
0: we've kind of switched positions. Yes. Um, And I asked you directly why that was. And you said that this was part of it.
1: It was. Yeah.
0: And it's, I've seen it on Twitter a lot. It's absolutely a part for a lot of people. And justifiably so. You know, like we can't be out here criticizing folks for all these manner of missteps. <laughs> Mm. without being able to be a little bit honest about that with regard to Simona.
1: Let's talk about Angelique Kerber a little bit. Well, let's talk about this match. She destroyed Madison Keys in what was a highly anticipated match, what people thought was going to be one of the big matches of the second week. Madison, man, like, (laughs) as you know, I'm a fan of Madison, but she just did not show up for that at all. And you said at the time, where is the plan B? And there isn't one. It, it, it was just hard to watch as a fan, and I hope it's a learning experience for her. I think I said at the time that
0: she could have used a little bit of shea in her game,
1: <laughs> right? Well, speaking of shea, that was the next match for Kerber. It looked like, it looked like she was going to go out. I, I didn't know how she was going to weather that storm. Shea plays a very unconventional game. Uh, some people. In the Twitter sphere, we're uncharitably calling it junk balling, which I think is really unfair because there's clearly a lot of skill that goes into playing that way. And craftiness. Yes. So what she lacks in in brute power, she makes up for in just in placement, in touch, in finesse, in creativity, really. She, man, she makes things happen. And Angelique did not have an answer for, for quite a while. And the contrast
0: between playing somebody like She and then having to play Keys after that, the Shea match sandwich between Sherpova and Keys. Right? You can mm. make a comparison between Sherpova and Keys in terms of the power of their game.
1: Right. And then And the lack of a plan B. <laughs> 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 which which Kerber exposed badly.
0: hmm Like we saw more than ever that Kerber is the player who is able to make most of an opponent's power right she has some of her own but mm-hmm. she's able to to feed and thrive off that power so well with the way she opens up the court with her angles and cling to the 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 baseline mm-hmm. like she's not awed by power at all
1: no because she'll sit there and absorb it literally defend, sit there defend right <laughs> sit on her bottom and defend 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 and then kill you Mm -hmm. like then she'll just unleash a shot that makes you want to die
0: and so we get to the semi-final which is our match of the tournament and it's it's quite literally i'm sitting there thinking one of these women might just die on court before
1: this match ends right i mean to me i'm watching it and it feels like oh is this is this like the women's equivalent of watching djokovic Nadal? in I their mean, prime it was, against it, each other. Right. Yeah. It's a slugfest. It's physically punishing. You have amazing rallies where neither player wants to relent and somehow <laughs> they find an opening.
0: And every there were multiple point of the year contenders within that oh, one yeah, match. Yeah. It was <laughs> I mean, I was just throwing things in the living room. It was crazy. Really? Like no. you want to get up and take a break to go do something, pour a drink mid-match, and you you find yourself just stuck there for a whole minute,
1: mm-hmm.
0: watching this match, <laughs> watching this point unfold
1: in crazy ways. I really felt that they they composed a symphony together, and it, there were like movements contained in a single point. <laughs> you know. Where so many times you thought it was over, there was a a drop shot, an incredible get, and then somebody moonballed. And then the moonball came back as a moonball. And you're like, oh, so now they're just being funny. Like, now they're having fun. I felt that, like in classical music, when a composer like inserts a little bit of humor, at like a false ending, <laughs> where, you know, in the 18th century, audiences would see that as humor. Yeah. Today we need to like cut through it a little bit. That like these women were ground grinding so hard, then they were like, yep, moonball. And I thought it was hilarious. Because it showed how absurdly high quality these points were.
0: Those moon balls were mostly from Simona and Kerber was mostly well, I'm gonna whack that fucking forehand from right. winner down the line. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that backhand that Simona backhand to Kerber forehand exchange which we saw so many times mm. during that match. That was like a play, watching a play
1: yeah. within a match. A two-hander, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: To round out the woman, I now call on you to tell me, what is your progress update mm. with finding a new player to stand for?
1: Uh, we're still, it's still to be determined. I, it's tough. I mean, Serena and Venus are still out there, Uh huh. you know? And I don't know what tennis looks like without them. I guess you could always say we got a glimpse, right? Whenever they lose earlier, they're not in the tournament. We're getting a glimpse of the post-Williams tennis. But people were saying that in 2006.
0: They're not going to be in the top 10 at 45.
1: Correct. But do I know what women's tennis will look like when they're not there? And I'll always be a tennis fan, but... Uh my first generation of tennis loves have not retired yet. That like that's how old they are that's how long they've been out here. Bitch, you watched
0: a lot of tennis this tournament. Mm-hmm. You watched a lot of women play. Right. I'm asking you, did any of them Do I stand? catch
1: your eye? No. None of them. No. There's no. Osaka, no. Osaka, sure. Kerber. Maybe but she's twenty eight, right? Okay. She's old too. Yeah. I mean I was I was supporting Kerber to win the whole tournament. And I was, Osaka's performance against Barty was electrifying.
0: Were there players whose game you were watching? You're like, oh, I
1: really enjoyed watching her play. Those two, probably. Barty. Well, yeah, I mean, we've talked about that before. But like, to become a stan, it takes, I don't know, it takes like some consistent results.
0: I'm talking about your progress report
1: here. This is the (laughs) early stages. Why are you being so... You're asking me to be honest, and I'm being honest. I don't know what the problem is. Mm. Okay. This is something we will
0: have to revisit, I suppose. Sure. At another time. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, I'm being told that there was a men's tournament as well. (laughs) (laughs) I...
0: (laughs) You are... (laughs) Roger Federer won his 20th Grand Slam title. He sure did. He shed some tears, which... Go do that I mean, I, after you've won your 20th you, slam title. You should. At 36, after having been through all that, to come back, have your, your comeback here, winning all those tournaments last year, and then come back again this year mm-hmm. and win again.
1: You know, that's, uh, that's quite something. So let me get this out of the way. Roger Federer is the greatest of all time, full stop. He, he is great. There is no denying that. But I am bored, firstly. And. We, you have decided that? That he is the greatest of all yeah, time? Yeah, I mean, un- unless somebody gets close.
0: So the metric is slams. I think. We're foregoing head to head, we're well, foregoing surfaces. <laughs>
1: I said that mainly as a preface to I'll probably say things that Fed fans will get really pissed well, off about. So I was trying to play. That's what them. I'm suspecting yeah.
0: here. Like you're trying to say something nice to get that out of the way and you just overshot mm-hmm. the shot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying the argument that he's not is really, really like it's it's stupid. It's fighting uphill. No, it it's is. not stupid, but it, it's just hard. It's getting harder and harder to fight. So I'm. That, I've accepted it. That's true. I mean, as a Rafa fan, I've accepted that Roger will be seen as the goat. Yeah. I mean, uh, is that, it possible that Djokovic's best is better than Federer's best? That's possible. That's Same argument. With Nadal.
0: That argument has not gotten me pressed since
1: two thousand eleven. No. No. But it's been a while. The reason I I said nice things first was that, like, who cares? It the men's tournament was horrible. Federer played brilliantly, as usual. Well, Um, not
0: so much in the final, from what I've seen in highlights and and read. But I
1: mean, you play who's on the other side of the net. You get a a virtual walkover in the semifinals. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would like the Fed fans to weigh in now on Rafa's U.S. Open. (laughs) <laughs> because I mean I'm not petty like that like you want a grand slam title it counts this is not 19 and a half or 19 and three quarters this is number 20 this is a real grand slam no. uh, so so the difficulty of someone's draw I'm not taking into account so you you go and tell that what about
0: the scheduling and the roof situation.
1: Yeah, I'm so tempted to fall into this roof thing. And. <laughs> <laughs> what? Fall into this right. roof trap? I'm so tempted to jump off the roof, to be honest.
0: Um, <laughs> oh, you, you spent all this time talking about the bulbous temperature and the global I did, I wetness did. of the sock and all that stuff last episode. <laughs> the, the,
1: <laughs> now, mm, do I think it's hypocritical? Probably. Do I think that? Money-making champions get a bigger say in where and when they play. Yes, definitely.
0: I mean, do we know that Rogers out here asking for these assignments? He, mostly yes. Mostly. Yes. He's
1: admitted to a lot of them. I mean, if a tournament a lot of them. <laughs> if a tournament official comes to you and asks you what your preference is, you're going to tell them your preference, right? No, but by default, you're not going to say, "Did you ask my opponent?" His preference?
0: No, but by default, he's gonna get a lot of the prime time showings because he's Roger Federer,
1: and they're beholden to TV as well. Um, yeah, so there is a lot of stuff
0: that's already built in to "quote unquote" privilege mm-hmm. him and benefit him because of who he is, and that's something right. he's earned exactly. The, the folks are making the argument that on top of that, there was just a lot
1: well, uh, in his
0: favor this tournament.
1: I I think a few a few of the arguments fall apart. the The first week argument that. We have to keep the roof open to be fair to other competitors, even if it's incredibly hot. That this is falling apart now because temperatures were hotter in the first week than they were for the final. The ambient temperature, now this supposedly was a hard and fast rule, that the ambient temperature and the wet ball temperature had to
0: reach, had to reach,
1: capital exactly. A-D. So we all took logic in high school. We did those pr- truth tables. Remember that? Mm-hmm. The the ambient temperature did not reach the threshold. It didn't reach forty degrees not during the final. No, they said it was thirty seven, probably at the beginning because it was at night. Um, but the wet bulb temperature reached the the threshold, so they decided to keep the roof closed. It was closed for the mixed doubles final. Now, of course, you know Roger Federer is the greatest or the second greatest indoor player ever. I think Novak Djokovic has a has a shout. The, the, the other but,
0: consideration is earlier in the week when we were talking about this with respect to the Novak-Mofis match, specifically, on mm-hmm. the last episode. There were so many other matches going on at that time. This is quite literally the last match. Right. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's nobody else to consider.
1: I'm just saying, if you, have, you had players out there in obviously unsafe conditions... I don't think there's there's no argument against that. You had the woman suffering the night before, <laughs> right? And Simone, it was,
0: like you were you were telling me earlier had to get hospital treatment yes, for dehydration. She was in
1: the hospital for four hours, undergoing treatment for you know with an IV in her arm. <laughs> they tweeted out that photo, but I, I'm not saying this is why Roger won. I'm like I'm not going down that road. Like I told you, I don't want to get sucked into this roof debate. Mm-hmm. So I think clearly someone of his stature and his marketability will get preferential treatment. Serena probably does. It's taken her longer to get that, of course. But. I just wish that
0: the, the tournament were more transparent. They're out here trying to defend the roof closure by giving a minute by minute breakdown <laughs> of what the degrees were. <laughs> at certain points and then you read it and like but the and the capital a and d (laughs) is not a factor of this equation so what are you out here talking about we we read the stupid ass rule that you made us read right like can we just agree that a lot of it is subjective like that would if we're being more upfront about it right then it's a lot more easy to to detract and deter the
1: haters I just okay.
0: honestly, I'm not, I'm not mad about it at all. I just find it kind of, kind of hilarious. Honestly,
1: the other thing about the men's side of this tournament is that, outside of diehard Fed fans, I don't know that anyone could say it was very good.
0: Also, I saw so many people advertising, selling their tickets. Try, mm-hmm. you know, there was no mm-hmm. shortage of trying to get right. a ticket for that final. <laughs> I I saw like five different websites selling tickets in the hundreds,
1: in terms of availability. For that final, so I'm just saying the ATP has its work cut out for them when Federer retires, because you have you have some all-time greats who are currently active who are banged up. Uh, Djokovic came, wasn't fit to compete. Wawrinka lost in the second round and created the greatest shitstorm of the century, <laughs> practically in Sangren. <laughs> Um, Nadal suffered that muscle injury in the quarterfinal. Nishikori it... wasn't here. Raonic isn't fit. I mean, the ATP is like the walking wounded, and
0: come to find out, Grigor played three matches with a bum shoulder. Right. He may not play in Sofia right now to defend his title in Bulgaria.
1: Yeah, in his his hometown tournament, basically. Which
0: makes sense based on what we saw of him in those matches. Mm-hmm. So but wait, stick a pin. My question to you is: What does it say? about the state of the ATP that Federer is out here winning these slams so easily at 36 and everybody else is the walking dead, essentially.
1: <laughs> I'm saying that if people are going to criticize the WTA when women win tournaments too easily, then the same logic has to be applied to the ATP.
0: That's one facet of, it is. of the conversation. The other facet has to be the interest situation. And what the tour is doing or not mm-hmm. doing to help combat those those yes. injuries. And we get Mr. Federer out here talking about early in the tournament that, well, injuries are a part of the game, essentially, full stop. Period.
1: Let's see.
0: And this comes I'm in really... contrast to Rafa's statements, which say, well, you know, uh, we we gotta do something about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. You know, because mm-hmm. Uh, (laughs) Because after my career, (laughs) we have to live, no? And look, seriously, we
0: just watched the Boris documentary last Mm -hmm. night. Boris Becker literally can barely walk.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It's a serious thing. And it's not just because he was throwing himself all over the courts back in the day. He was playing on much more differentiated surfaces back then. Right. Let alone these guys who are playing on all these surfaces that... Are fairly slow, with the exception of the Australian Open, the last couple of years. Mm.
1: What, uh, like, okay, where do well, we- I know there are a lot of Fed fans who listen, and I love y'all, and I respect Roger Federer very much. But something that's always irked me about him is is the whole like everything's fine, don't look here, this mentality like everything is fine for Roger Federer, therefore everything is fine, <laughs> you know. It's why I have some respect for Novak Djokovic in, at least in words. We'll we'll see if indeed as well. He is trying to look out for players other than himself. Trying to change tennis structurally at least a little bit. And so when Novak is out with this elbow injury, which is very unfortunate and very scary for him because I I don't think he and his team know really what's next, but that's besides my point while he's out, he's got a lot of time to think about this unionization thing and think if if injuries and scheduling is something that a union should address.
0: Mm. Right? So you're saying Novak potentially is an answer to this. I'm talking about Man, the fact well, that, well, we have two extremes of opinions right here. Right. We have Federer saying, don't look here, like, everything's cool. <laughs> and then Rafa is sounding alarms. Yeah. And then Rafa is being made fun of or being taken to task saying well you know what buddy like maybe you should play a different style of game your style of game yep. is just not conducive to staying healthy you knew this you knew this when you were 20 you said you weren't going to play for very long because mm. my body can't send up to it and now here you are at 31 in these streets now trying to call foul like how dare you
1: <laughs> this you this isn't your
0: opinion right you're no like i'm giving a i'm talking about some of the feedback to right. rafa's statements that i saw
1: and to be fair, a lot of Rafa's critiques are self-serving. Yeah, real, right? Yes, okay. They're not a, I mean they may benefit the greater good, but that's maybe not where they come from. Uh what
0: a I mean multiple things can be true right. at once. We we say this all the <laughs> yes.
1: time. I think uh, federer is is the traditionalist, right? Like that's that's his archetype that he fills. Multiple and, courts, multiple court surfaces
0: playing the same is not historical and purist and part of the allure of the game like this is a fairly new phenomenon and it's also something that changes from time to time like it's not a it's not something that's a break from the history of tennis right mm. it might be the norm for what his career has lived through but it's not what the 90s were
1: mhm i don't know i don't really get what his resistance is because he i think he would have flourished under a system that was more like the '80s or the '90s as well, right? Like that—that that saw Sampras winning all those slams. I think Federer would have been fine.
0: Two big shout-outs: one to Hyun Chung, who made the semifinals mm-hmm. of the Australian Open.
1: A star is born. Winner of the Next Gen Finals. Uh huh. Uh, he announced himself in a big way. Somebody on this podcast picked him to break out this you year. You did.
0: I also picked him last year as well. So, <laughs> Well, you were right last year so too. This was a dream deferred.
1: Mm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so he has this big bust-up moment. He beats Djokovic. And while Djokovic was... I can't remember if we talked about this on the last episode. But Djokovic was clearly not fully himself. But mm-hmm. still very capable in that match. Right. And Chung, people talked about it ad nauseum that he was kind of a mirror image of Djokovic in that match.
1: Mm. And I could see
0: it. Yeah, it wasn't overstated. Mm. And he was so impressive. You watch him play Djokovic and you watch him in this tournament and you say, well, wow, this kid is absolutely one for the future. And unfortunately for him, he had that massive crater on his foot (laughs) slash blister in the semifinal and had to retire. And shame on those people, frankly. Who are telling him? Oh, huh. I've heard, I've saw people call him a pussy, mm-hmm. which is like, enraging. It's frank. It's, it's enraging. Just, like who are we to tell about people like, what their pain threshold should be? You
1: never quit. You should never quit. It's such a macho mentality, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter if women hold that mentality as well. It's no, still it macho. Doesn't. Yeah,
0: like uh, masculinity. Hello, is performative. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hello. Hello. Like, I, I appreciate that people were sharing the pictures of the foot to provide evidence. I don't appreciate that I had to see it because I believed him regardless. I mean, if, you, if you're if you showing the
0: foot to make a point, absolutely. But don't be gratuitous, gratuitously <laughs> disseminating this foot on social media. Or like, at least put a trigger warning on it. Right. Because it ain't no blister. It's a fucking crater in his foot. Yeah. And again, we'll make the point that folks are out here trying to actually live a decent standard of living after tennis. Okay? This is true. And I guarantee you, you will not be remembering that Hyun Chung retired from a semifinal match down 6-1, 5-1 to Roger Federer mm. Ten years in now. 2018. Like, you will not give a shit. He will give a shit if he has, like, fucked up heels mm. and soles of his feet.
1: Another shout out to Kyle Edmund. One of the biggest forehands in the game mm-hmm. who reached his first Grand Slam semi-final. Yeah.
0: Kyle Edmonds' forehand is the truth. <laughs> Paul Pierce is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the power. It's... uh Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a more powerful forehand.
1: Okay. Maybe I'm ignorant. Really?
0: Maybe I'm ignorant. And Del I Potro? Just... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just... I don't, I just, I don't know. It was, it was crazy good. Put it that way.
1: So maybe, maybe Great Britain has a, has a hope after Sir Andrew Murray retires?
0: Yeah, he's up to number 26 in the world. Mm-hmm. Shout out to the Murrays who were on Twitter showing out as well. <laughs> we learned about the Murray crap, the Murray household crossword situation between <laughs> mom and son. And... We had Andy and Jamie going back and forth about Novak Djokovic when, when he was down <laughs> in that match. It, yeah. was, it was fun, you know. It, mm. it, it, it would seem to move past the dire nature of Andy not being there into right. a more,
1: you know, playful situation. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about those doubles results. We watched the mixed doubles final last night. Mate Pavic. Mate Pavic. Mate Pavic. Bay Pavic.
0: The last time we saw him, he was sporting more
1: hair on his head. Mm-hmm. He got a little haircut. He looks a little bit Djokovician, I would say. A little bit. Thankfully, not too much. But he and Canadian Bay Gabby Dabrowski won mixed doubles mm-hmm. versus uh, Tomeo Babosch and Rohan Bopana. Now, this is Gabby's second Slam title. The first she won with Bopana the French Open last year. Uh huh. Apparently, the commentators were trying to play up this drama. Rohan decided to go with Tamea Babosh before this tournament. And I guess Gabby found out in the press. Like, he didn't call her and tell her. These
0: Indian men, always (laughs) with some mess.
1: Man, like Leander Pace and all the mess he's left in his wake. Um, But you know what? She got hers. She she did. She got
0: one half of that $140,000 paycheck, which is beans, a pittance. I In know. the landscape yeah. of tennis prize money at Grand Slam, like I'm, I've said this before, and people were like, "Oh, you know, well nobody watches doubles, blah blah blah." Nobody was at the doubles match. Pretty no, much, there was nobody. Nobody was there. It's tennis fans who's watching it. But this is the classic: did the chicken come before the egg?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, like, and I talk about this all the time with respect to getting women's sport its due. You cannot be saying the- that. Nobody wants to watch women's sport when nobody's putting women's sport on TV. Like at some point, somebody has to invest, put the time, put the money, put a monetary value to doubles Mm -hmm. to say that this event is important. Because we know the society that we live in, we live in a capitalist world for the most part in 2018. Not just North American, around the world, people value money. People assign value to something Mm. because of the money attached to it. And so if Roger Federer is out here winning $4 million for winning the Australian Open, more power to him. But why is the mixed doubles the bottom rung on the Grand Slam ladder of, of Slam winners, right? Mm. It's, it's there. That's the bottom one. If they're making $144,000 to split and Federer is making $4 million by himself, what does that say about how the tour itself values these players who grind from week to week to week and are specialist doubles players. Mm. You're saying that doubles is not that important.
1: And I think the scoring system doesn't help. Um the ad scoring, the super tie break rather than a third set. I mean you can't give them a third set. It it feels like a lot is uh is left up to chance. And to me, watching that final it felt like it took some of the import away from the result. Like it wasn't it wasn't that serious because of the way the scoring works. Because there, I mean, in the super tiebreak, it's really just, uh, is the guy serving to the woman? Like, that can make all the difference, right? Pavic hit two aces down match point, and, like, that was that. And then Dabrowski hit a screaming forehand winner perfectly placed, and that was it. Like, it happened so fast.
0: Other doubles winners... Mladenovic teamed with Babos to beat Makarv and Vesnina, who were going for their golden career slam. <laughs> right. Olympic gold yeah. and all four slams in doubles, mm. and they were unable to get that done. Mladenovic riding a 15-match losing streak in singles, losing first round at the Australian Open in singles, going now to St. Petersburg to try and defend her title mm-hmm. and win a match in singles, will at least arrive with some matches under her belt because she's won the doubles title.
1: And then Pavic... And Pavic also won the men's doubles with Marach, and they defeated uh, Robert Farah, Instagram fave, and Juan Sebastian Cabal from Colombia. So, we, you know, we had Babos in two finals. She also beat Coco Vandeway in the first round. Pavic doubled. He won men's doubles and mixed doubles. It was a pretty exciting result in the doubles draws. Yeah, both
0: Babos and Pavic had the potential to be doubling up in this mixed doubles final. And it was Mate Pavic who Mm. ended up winning both. Let's give a shout out to our sponsor, shall we? It's Mm -hmm. that time of the show.
1: So Health IQ Mm -hmm. is a life insurance agency. Yes. They work with a bunch of different insurers only with A or A-plus rated insurance carriers. Mm -hmm. And their thing is... They are geared toward health conscious people, right? They're trying to get you a better rate on your life insurance. Because Be- you're, I, I mean, to put it crudely, and I, we can only put it crudely on the show, <laughs> you're less likely to die. And that's really the, the thing about insurance, right? If you are active
0: <laughs> and you take care of your body, you should benefit from paying less on, on life insurance. Right. That's the premise.
1: Do, are you a safer driver? For example, do you get into fewer accidents? Are you less of a risk to insure?
0: And how many times with insurance, you feel like you're doing all the things by the book and you should, and you feel like you're still not getting the rates that you deserve. Yeah. Right? And so this is where this comes in with Health IQ. You go, you take their quiz, which is geared to identify the folks who are really health conscious and take care of their bodies. And then you uh, get access to these
1: special rates. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing is an agent will take you through the entire journey. It's not like, you know, you don't put in your information, they spit out a quote. They'll take you through the very first... Interaction. Through the application, through the underwriting process, and then through the actual policy. So you're, you're never alone in the process. It's not, you're not talking to a computer, right? It's a
0: more personal approach to life insurance.
1: Mm-hmm. So to see if you qualify... Get your free quote at healthiq.com slash bodyserve or mention our promo code bodyserve when you talk to an agent. Okay, so it's time to get a little bit more serious. Mm-hmm. This is the the more difficult part of the segment for the podcast for us. We spent
0: all week trying to decide how much we were going to wade into it, what parts of it we were going to wade into. And it it took a lot of... Dialogue between us to get mm-hmm. to this point.
1: So, Tennis Sangrin had a a run to the Australian Open quarterfinals. Previously, most tennis fans had never heard of him. Um, we had heard his name a while ago. I would say probably a year or two ago because of Bad Toss on Twitter because she had, basically she knew him from a challenger in Illinois. And she was familiar with his politics because of some uh, rather problematic tweeting and retweeting and (laughs) liking as we all know what's come to light now but she's really the sort of the the ground ground, zero the ground zero on tennis twitter of tennis sangren's problematic politics
0: she was at that challenger covering the event for the changeover back in the Mm day and the piece the original piece that she wrote didn't have anything to do with his political leanings because, oh, while well, some people may have known, nobody really knew at that time. And so it was about the tennis.
1: Right. And that he was uh, generally a, a very nice guy, a mm-hmm. congenial fellow.
0: Which is still something that people say about him. And right. as we remind folks, multiple things are true.
1: <laughs> that, that part is not a How dispute. How many times an episode <laughs> do we say this now? Well, you say it. <laughs> the point is, these, these things were out there there were tennis journalists who knew about it. And it wasn't just tennis Twitter people. The reporters who are more active on tennis Twitter probably had had inklings about it or had seen stuff here and there, not enough for a story. But I, I wanna preface the segment by saying tennis Twitter is what compelled reporters to cover this story. Like it would it would not be a story if Tennis Twitter were not e- out here screenshotting, doing the research that, that formed kind of the backbone a lot of, of a lot of these questions. It
0: developed in real time. It did. It was from day to day, something you came out and it, it was totally driven by bad Toss, Thank you so much for the work that you
1: did with regard to this
0: and also for the folks on Tennis Twitter who, who kept
1: at it. It was fascinating to watch in real time because you did get to see a little bit of a grassroots movement Uh, and uh, these reporters are in australia they're far away from us physically but the questions did start to come and i think the first story i read published in a a major outlet was on monday usa today ran with something and quickly followed by the new york times by all of the major papers this was becoming a story tennis channel was doing their best to avoid it Mm -hmm. tennis channel who it should be noted is owned by sinclair broadcasting which is led by an extremely conservative person who's trying to influence local news coverage we
0: we do want to to point out that one of the shortcomings of the the reporting on this issue is a lack of giving credit to where the story started and that starts with a Bad Toss. And that's, that is, I want to say the last time we'll say her handle on the show because she's been going through it in terms of the backlash from those who want to support Tennis mm. Sangren, right? Like I learned the word dox for the first time this past two weeks because she
1: has been getting doxed. Mm. And that was part of the reason why, why I didn't want to do like an entire episode about it. You know, because it's depressing, first of all. But um, I don't want to be targeted by these lunatics. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what they are. I don't know if they're bots or whatever, but... It's it's so much more than that. We're at the point in the proceedings
0: where all this stuff has happened and we're getting a lot of well-actualies. And, well, mm, what about that? Why this? Oh, let's just move on. Let's, let's get along. Blah, 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 blah. It's not just all far-right people who are coming at you and her and the story mm-hmm. from a an ideologically violent position. It's people who are being contrary, people who are just, you know, those people who will not step up to a confrontational mm-hmm. situation in their life whatsoever.
1: I'm glad you said that, because this is the political moment that we find ourselves in, and I I don't think that the Tennis Sangren moment would have happened in another era. I think we're living in a time when white supremacy is seen by many people as a viable position, as, a, as an opinion to be debated in the, I hate this word, the, the marketplace of ideas. Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it. Is. I mean, you have the New York Times, the country's paper of record, putting out every week, day in and day out, this white nationalist likes cookies that you know stephen miller is the evil that we need which came out today something like that it i mean the i think the sample size is big enough now where we can see the new york times more so than other national newspapers trying to humanize nazis and racists and people i mean people whose political careers are built on racism Mm -hmm. And, and so,
0: the, the whole Trump movement and the Trump era being so out in the open now, it has played on people's insecurities. It has made these ideas mainstream. And while there's an argument to be made, potentially, that not everybody who aligns or aligns themselves with or retweets a certain thing or likes a certain thing is a Nazi or is a racist... You know, like Mm -hmm. that's an argument to be made, but it's so difficult to make that argument in this day and age. Right.
1: Because we are being asked to legitimize white supremacy by debating it.
0: It doesn't, it's not, this this discussion is not happening within a vacuum. It's happening within the broader context of what people are living through in their Mm -hmm. regular lives. And which is why it was so taxing and difficult for us to engage with this issue and formulate a segment for this episode, because this is something that we fight against in our regular lives, and here it is seeping into tennis.
1: And so what I think, you know, the world has changed, our world has changed a lot in the past two years, because I think before 2016, those ideas would have been shouted down in the public sphere. White supremacy was something that at least overt white supremacy was was hidden it was spoken of in different language it wasn't a mainstream political idea even if the policies of white supremacy were being enacted on people of color Mm -hmm. and immigrants
0: and previously you think of a nazi with the hood and now i'm I'm, kind of hesitant to engage with this turn of phrase but know that the the hoods are off Mm. you know how do you then identify these extremists And these extreme opinions if you don't know what it looks like anymore because it's becoming
1: so mainstreamed that's part of the problem as well so uh, first and foremost the idea that we should debate and prove through reason and logic that white supremacy is wrong is is a non-starter for me like the the presupposition is is where we've gone wrong there's there's no debating like these ideologies are destructive they seek to break apart families. They seek, I mean, Tennis Sangren is out here responding and supporting people who believe that Europe should be made white again. First of all, as if Europe was ever white. And it's but,
0: its not just mm-hmm. an idea in the marketplace, well, right?
1: It's not, that's the thing. It's not just another opinion that we can talk about. Because these opinions are not only opinions, they're tied to political machinery, Mm -hmm. Right. Like these opinions have real world destructive consequences. And when the
0: consequences of these ideas are so intimate for folks in their real lives, they're so destructive, they're tearing families apart. There are folks who cannot engage with this as just an idea. And so when you're getting pushback from folks who are saying, calm down, it's not that big of a deal. Like, no, like there are folks who've lived this And it's been extremely detrimental and fatal Mm -hmm. to many facets of their lived experiences the last couple of years in very personal ways. And we can't take that position anymore. It's not a reasonable thing to expect folks to meet this kind of ideology and trying to have a temperate discussion in a rational way.
1: Right. It's like... So you have this friend who's a really nice guy, but he also thinks that Muslims should be banned from Europe um, and that certain races are innately superior to others. <laughs> like, but you can still be friends at the end of the day. Like you can set that aside. I can't personally no, like no. I, I will not because I don't think that's a, a reasonable opinion to have. Now, we kind of went through a whole journey with mr sangren this week right the first thing was finally finally the media were asking him these questions and reporting it and i say finally the the time frame was very small it it felt it felt really long for us but i mean these stories came out on the monday of the tournament the the tournament was a a week old right and sangren had just become a story so really it actually didn't take that long the journalist responded fairly quickly no but what what was fascinating was that we've had
0: a couple writers who were who were ready and had already yeah. written yeah. the underdog narrative journeyman american mm-hmm. story and then they have to come back for whatever reason whether it's self-preservation Or being completely blind to it before, or choosing to ignore it and thinking, well, maybe it won't be that big of a deal and won't have to address it. But within the space of a day or two, having to come back and write another piece.
1: Right. So then
0: set the record, quote unquote, straight. So
1: Christopher Clary had to write a a supposedly balanced piece, sort of walking back from his celebration of of Sangren. John Wertheim, same thing. And now we see after the apology, John Wertheim is hedging his bets again, sitting on that fence, right? So at first, the response from Sandgren after he lost his quarterfinal was to read this prepared statement, which was basically attack on the lying press, um, because it was a clear Trumpian attack on the free press, right? He and was, at, that point, because he was, at where, that point, he was getting it from Twitter. It right. really wasn't the people in the room. But where was the lie? Like which tell me which published news article lied about tennis sangren there were a lot of people on twitter saying really disparaging things about him personally mm-hmm. but there were screen caps there were i mean there were receipts for days right i i guess calling him a racist would be would be uh subjective but there were certainly no journalists doing that they were just reporting what happened
0: so tennis you played very well against dominic team today uh was it that being a racist helped you in that second set? You know, like that right, Like
1: that was not a question. They, this, were, they were asking about verifiable facts. Like this is what you tweeted, this is who you follow, blah, blah, blah. And so at first it was, well, it's ridiculous to think who I follow and who I retweet means that I endorse those views. But yeah, he's talking about how, you know, I essentially I dabble in everything. <laughs> so then they came back with, Really, it's not just about how you, who you follow. It's like literally what you have said. Because How about
0: that time you said you stumbled into a gay bar and, oh my God, m- nobody should have to see that my eyes were bleeding? Mm.
1: And so, we, you know, and we see things like it's always a good day when Serena Williams loses, which I think is a more common opinion than we'd like to believe amongst a certain segment of American male tennis players. Ryan Harrison has tweeted disparaging things about her before. So these things are like piling up, right? And Tennis Twitter has been out here screen capping diligently before Tennis <laughs> I'm going to call him Tennis. I'm just going to call him Tennis for the next of the segment, okay. the rest of the segment. That's fine. So the receipts are there. So then it became clear he couldn't deny it and it turned into uh, Well,
0: he tried to have it be a deniable situation right. by purging his entire Twitter feed. He got a, a bot, an app, oh. to delete all of his tweets. It took, so lo- it took so long. Yeah, I mean, it was like a day. What? But <laughs> we're talking about 5,000 tweets. I don't know uh, what the what the going rate for this type of stuff is. But the, the tweets were gone. But, as you said, the diligent tennis Twitter folks.
1: Right. I they, mean, the damage they, was done. It was done. They have been up for a long, long time.
0: And where he really, really... I mean, it was one of... I knew of him before, and so a lot of what I saw and what was happening didn't surprise me. What really galled me was how when that purge had happened, the only tweet that was left up for a while was a retweet of Bad Toss's article from the changeover way back in the day mm-hmm. when she didn't know who which he was. Which was complimentary. Which was complimentary, and the, the tag of it was complimentary to him as well. And mm. now you tell me if that was not Targeted. Oh, of course. And with her name attached to that article. Mm. And her then subsequently being doxxed by all these people.
1: So then you have John Isner and Ryan Harrison. Uh, what's his face? Sme- um, Steve Johnson. Going after individual people on Twitter to defend their friend, Tennis. So it's it's very clear that all of these guys hold the same views. And if they don't. If they don't necessarily hold those views, they certainly don't find them objectionable. Nor
0: are they willing to engage with why they're problematic to other people.
1: John Isner was the worst of them; just went all out attack uh, on people. So he is. I don't know where he's at after this. Like I don't know if he's in a world of hurt, or if USTA decided to like reel him back in and say like, listen, you need to shut up about this. Any. A responsible agent and manager would have there's no way you come out of this looking good and people are saying well you're
0: entitled to your opinion you're absolutely entitled to have those opinions you're not entitled to then tell
1: me that i don't have
0: my opinion mm-hmm. in response to your right. opinion
1: and you're <laughs> it's- is anyone preventing him from doing his job did anyone take his prize money uh, no i don't think so no Uh...
0: (laughs) The fact that it's a shame that this has to happen to him at this great moment of his career, that is certainly not on me to feel bad about. No. Because this is entirely of his own doing. And it's something that's totally foreseeable. It makes me wonder if he ever thought he would ever play a Grand Slam main draw match, let alone win one. Because he'd won two or three matches before he even attempted to delete some of these Mm. tweets. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and it was just way too late. But what's particularly telling for me is that after the apology and everything, a lot of these guys, you know, reporters or commentators who are men are saying, We've all had regrettable views in our teen years and our twenties. Mm, He's a young guy. Lord. And I'm thinking like, yeah, there are there are opinions of mine that I'm I'm not proud of, but like, did you really all you thought that? Like, you you really you went that far? You were like a far right wing fascist in that volume, right? <laughs> right. And he's twenty six. He he's is grown not a kid. He's a grown man. We we talk. About let's not this. even let's not even get into the racialization of who is grown and who is not. Yes, that's right? a
0: huge part of it like, because we
1: have teenage. African-American boys being tried as adults. And being, you know, spoken of mm-hmm. in public discourse as, as they should know better and that they're grown men, right? When they're 15 years old.
0: But 26-year-old Tennis Sangren is, is flailing mm. away lost. He's a lost boy. Right. It's, it's, it's absolutely
1: absurd. And he's got to have his mom out here
0: When him. When he's presenting these ideas from a place of certitude, you know he's his pulpit from which he's arguing and retweeting and whatever it's 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 not of somebody who is unsure of what he's saying like he everything about the way he's presented himself in this entire thing is is that condescending
1: mm-hmm.
0: kind of well i I'll, I'll give you a little bone but i i know what i know
1: so it comes to his quarterfinal against chung And Serena Williams tweets at the beginning of the match, turns channel.
0: (laughs) So Serena said... Whoa, we're missing a step in the story here, because when this is unfolding, we have not just the Isners coming out of the woodwork to go to full bat for him. There are other players who are saying, oh my God, like, he is, he's nice. You know, like, maybe this is not all him. Let's, let's turn it down a little bit. One of those was Serena's
1: current hitting partner. Her new, brand new hitting brand partner, new hitting Tamir partner Jenkins. Who has yet to hit with her in public. <laughs> <laughs> and he is, he's a black guy. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he he might know Tennis personally and say like, guys, this is too much. He's a nice guy. Let's not make this the story. But
0: given that uh, part of the big storm that was brewing was t- tennis's words against Serena. <laughs> To begin with. We've cautioned on this podcast before to not rile the army. And there may be a a cross-section, an intertwining between Serena's army and the Beehive. But those are two (laughs) fandoms that you do not want to have coming for you. And I've never in my life seen anything more swift than how he was gathered on social media.
1: And, I mean, he's new to this. Like, he's not used to being in the public eye. And I think he just, he stepped in it and was like, oh, shit.
0: Yeah, because his position is, it's one that he's totally allowed to have. Yeah. But you wonder, like, where was the judgment in this? To think that, you know, like, potentially my job's not as secure as I would. It's not like he's been in serious camp for years. <laughs> you know, like, you're new here. And what is my boss going to think? If, right? like, out in these Twitter streets, I'm seen defending Mr. Sangren. I mean... No, it makes me wonder, like, is the, it it seems like he just wasn't aware of how this all I, works. I agree.
1: Right? I think now he knows. I mean, he knows not to mess with the army. I certainly don't mess with the army because, like, I, I want to live. I value my life. So Serena tweeted Turn's channel, and I just about died. I mean, Serena said, I felt the need to tug on his wig. <laughs> I... Did not try to remove it. Just shifted it a little I bit. I did not want to remove it. <laughs> <laughs> Just shifted a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And the very next day, she ripped it right off. But before,
0: uh, you said to me privately as well, you know, you really think Serena's going to see this? And I was like, girl, Serena's arm is out here tagging <laughs> Serena, <laughs> Venus, Jill. Jill. Or a well, scene?
1: once I saw Jill, I was like, "It's over." Yeah, it like over. The, everybody knows in about Serena's it, camp,
0: mm-hmm. and you know, Mister Ohanian is active on Twitter as well. He for sure
1: saw it. <laughs> I was most concerned about Jill, I, I saw <laughs> once once Jill got mad, like it's done. the The Williams camp is decided. She would have just tightened her shawl over <laughs> her neck, her sweater, right, and gotten to work. But jokes aside. We talked about Serena tweeting that and then Martina going full bore on Tennis Channel. That that really changed the conversation. It made it safe for players and for the tennis establishment to start being critical. Mm-hmm. It really did. These are two very influential women, transformative figures, political figures. And, uh, I mean, Serena is someone who is in a position of power what she says has serious import so I think that her tweeting that snide little turns channel it, it totally shifted the tone and again like this is this is why I stand because my player stands for something I I just continue to be impressed by Serena I at first I was like you know she's she's at home with Olympia Maybe she's not paying attention. She's just trying to live her life. Get back to tennis. But, you know, she was paying attention.
0: And hats off to Martina Navratilova because so many people were tiptoeing around this Mm -hmm. issue early on in the business.
1: She's got to sit across a desk from Justin Gimelstap, from John Wertheim, who was at first, at first, very content to gloss over it. And he, you know, he got serious about it after a while. Poor Brett Haber, who... I mean, he he's always just trying to keep the peace. <laughs> I feel bad
0: for Brett Haber. No, but the bottom line is there was a total shift in the way they were covering it there as was. well, yeah. post-Martina speaking about it, because she started addressing it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. She gave a segment where she talked about it as well, and it, it was very simple. It's not like she said, oh my God, Tennis, you are evil. You are right. the next Hitler. This is <laughs> This is an abomination. All she said was, the things you're being asked about you said them if you tweeted about these things yes. you need to own up to it you need to let us know where you are now what is this about
1: you need to be honest yeah you can't say that i was i was sampling opinions across the entire political spectrum before i made a decision about where i stand that's not honest because where where were the where were the tweets about the left mm. uh But it was
0: so simple. Right. It was such a simple entryway to be able to expand this discourse. Mm. And she did it so expertly. She did. And then you get the subsequent segments on Tennis Channel where they're now dealing with it more expansively. And she's there again. And she's now... She's forced the issue. Like, we talked about how Tennis Twitter drove this thing. Mm -hmm. But Martina was the one who, on a a, national level, on a television level... Mm -hmm open this thing up. And it's we take for granted that she's the outspoken one, that you know, she's been doing this all her life. The press conferences that she had to give and answer and sit through her coming out, having to deal with defecting in the eighties. Like she And that happened at the same time. Yeah. Her career was fraught with all this stuff and she she dealt with it then and maybe that's the reason why she has no fucks to give about censoring herself. <laughs> right. But we need to not take it for granted that she's going to be the only one. You know, it's it's great that Serena and Martina opened up this discussion and used their 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 platform and their pulpit. We, we want this from our athletes. Those mm-hmm. who have the platform should use it, right? But there are all these other players who have the platform and don't use it, who are more want- Try and massage the situation so that the net effect is that it goes away. Mm -hmm. When in fact, we've been shown by Martina that it's so simple to deal with this effectively.
1: At the same time, it's not easy. You know, true, Serena and Martina are extraordinary. There's no denying that. But at the risk of getting sappy, I think that everyone can be extraordinary. And we saw a lot of people on tennis Twitter take brave and principled stances. Throughout this whole thing. So, like, shout out to you guys. It's, it's not just the Serenas and the Martinez of the world who can be great. What about the people who are out here saying, well, actually? What about these people? Well, I'm paying them dust. I have, I have nothing to say about that. Well, actually is, I mean, this is the well-intentioned liberal who Martin Luther King talked about. These are the people who let horrible things happen. I, I believe that. We have, in this time, we have, we have to take a stand about ideas like that. Those are not allowed to exist in my, in my world. They're not viable political positions. So if, if Tenise is apologizing and it's sincere, I'm willing to hear it. But the turnaround has been about two hours. It's two hours. Right, like, the, the apology, in my opinion, is disingenuous. It reads like it was translated from Chinese. I mean, it's full of big uh, words. They don't quite make sense where they are. Like like it's been fed through a translator a few times and spit out.
0: As for the plucky loser said, $10 words.
1: Yeah. I just think that the apology itself is dripping with ideology, with equivocation, with alt-right and alt-left, as if the alt-left is really a thing, which it's not. His mom is out here talking about how she loves you. Jesus loves you. Tennis is really smart. And it's a damn shame that he's had to go through this. Like, I don't think that the apologies are genuine. If they are. If they are.
0: If they are. Now is not the time to be like, let's hold hands and move on. No. You know, like, this is not something you get over in the span, span of two days.
1: I mean, this is like the Chris Brown turnaround, right? Yeah,
0: And I don't know what is needed to be done for it to be made right i don't know if it will ever be made right it's something that only time will tell and i don't know what it looks like i don't know if it means you Mm -hmm. go and you spend time working with like lgbt organizations or you donate something here you donate something there but it's something that after like say maybe five years you look back and you say well what have you done tennis and he shows you and you're like well well Mm -hmm. damn oh shit (laughs) <laughs> but it's not two days after the fact, no. and then for people to be out here in these Twitter streets to be like, "Oh, you know, apologies i when he seems so sincere, I think we should just move on <laughs>
1: like, okay, everybody, let's just calm down. no I mean, believe me, I want to put this behind us." I really like. I really do. I don't want to talk about it anymore, but I have to. Yeah, I mean, but you what know? is
0: putting it behind you? You can put it behind you personally. You don't have to exactly. to put it behind you on Twitter to say, "Oh, this apology is a must-read." Like this, is as not... some of the tennis journalists, the actual right. tennis journalists, Clary yes. and Worthine yes. specifically, yeah. saying, "You know, you can simply retweet it. You don't have to editorialize exactly. it. We will decide what we want to make of it." It it was it's crazy to me, like the the tone deafness of. The way it's been handled, it's mind-blasting. Like, we've we, I mean, we decided to move on. Tennis, you go home, you regroup, enjoy that. those hundreds of thousands of dollars. Maybe this apology slash PR move will still net you some endorsements. You'll be able to enjoy that, set up an RRSP something. <laughs> 401k
1: for oh, the that, American yeah, folks. That's what we say in Canada.
0: <laughs> you know, do you for a little while regroup, but, like, the rush... To
1: to swift this under the rug, no, it's it's not on. It's like, just slow your roll. I'll be ready when I'm ready, if ever.
0: What can we say to wrap up this Sangren thing?
1: I don't know. I mean, it was fucking dire. It really was. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for for the country that born me.
0: And while it will never be probably viewed this way by him, it was most embarrassing for him, in not the ways that mm. he thinks.
1: Yeah. While there were a lot of highlights to this Australian Open, it's a major that I'm happy to see the back of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I usually feel when a Grand Slam tournament is over, I feel kind of a sense of emptiness. Like, well, what am I going to do now? This time, I'm I'm really happy to just move on from it. We have our shows queued up. <laughs> <laughs> we're ready to get back right. to regular life. I'm, But I'm just like, I'm not looking to see, oh, what tennis is on tonight? I'm just... I'm okay. Like, I'm content that it's over. Mm-hmm. And I'm not yeah. looking
0: forward to what next
1: male shitstorm is coming in tennis. <laughs> because. But hey, you know, I have to give credit to John McEnroe because we drag him a lot. All the time. A lot. That whole commissioner of tennis segment that he does for Eurosport, you know, good good on you, yeah, John. Yeah, I mean,
0: he did well with Margaret Court and he did well he again did. this time. He did.
1: So we could do worse.
0: Yeah, and he highlighted One of the takeaways from that segment Mm. is not just that what tennis did was shit and he needs to own it and be called out for it. Mm. But that this idea that sport is free from politics, it's something that I find so repugnant. It was at the core of my academic life Mm -hmm. for the entirety of it.
1: And it's really uh, the impetus for this podcast. It is. It It would not exist without that belief.
0: You could make arguments in sport at large why that's absolute bollocks, Mm. dating back to the turn of the 20th century.
1: Or the entirety of European football Mm -hmm. from its very birth.
0: Jack Johnson, you hear people talk about, oh, we're looking for the next great white hope. Mm. And people have said that, I'm sure we have, in response to the rise of Sharapova. We sure have. Uh, That's where that comes from. Jack Johnson Mm. in boxing. And Joe Lewis fighting Max Schmeling. Jesse Owens being used by the American government to make a big political statement on the international stage against Hitler Mm -hmm. in 1936.
1: All the way up to Castro Semenya being tested for her gender. Uh Uh-huh. You know.
0: You think that Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in baseball at that time was not political? (laughs) You think that Martina Navratilova playing as an open lesbian on the WTA tour was not political, that the founding of the WTA tour by Billie Jean King and those original nine was not political, that everything happens within the lines in sport, and it's just there for your gratification and your escapism? No. Well, those were rhetorical
1: questions. (laughs) Because the answer is obviously no. (laughs) No. It's no to all of them. (laughs) The point is that John McEnroe addressed the politics that are embedded in sport and gave voice to those political actors who transformed his sport.
0: Yeah. And to the people who insist on saying that there is no politics in sport, Mm -hmm. do better. Read a book. My friend tells me all the time, well, not me personally, but one of her favorite things to do (laughs) when somebody says something really daft is read a book. There's literally endless literature on all these things. I can tell you, that was was all I was reading in in college. Mm. (laughs) Any topic, you can find a book that's already been written. If you want to find out how West Indian cricket and West Indian cricketers influenced various independence movements from Britain in the Caribbean between 1928 and 1962, you can look up my master's thesis on the (laughs) internet.
1: I like I that spent little spent many years researching that.
0: Okay. <laughs> that is the end of this episode. I'm happy to have it done. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm Jonathan.
1: And you can find me at Elliot JMR. I'm comrade James.
0: <laughs> two L's, two T's. The podcast is on Twitter at The Body Serve. Similarly, at The Body Serve on Instagram. And... We look forward to hearing from you with respect to what was said on this podcast. Till next time.